Well, I see a good number of bleary-eyed baseball fans out there. <clears throat> I know for a fact because one of you texted me as soon as the game was over. If you fall asleep in my sermon, I won't get nearly as grumpy as Donovan does when you fall asleep in his. So you have permission today. A word of celebration before we begin. We have with us today Dr. Shirley Gomez. Shirley is the first one of our equal chance for education students. She's graduated medical school, I understand, and is going to begin her residency. And we are excited for you. God bless you. She's sitting with Mike Sterling. We are so proud of you. Thank you. Our text this morning from Mark is a part of a carefully designed section of the gospel that begins in chapter 4, verse 1, with the well-known parable of the sower. After teaching the parable, Jesus draws his disciples aside and explains it to them line by line. He then goes on to tell a series of four short parables, the parable of the lamp under the bushel, the parable of the measure, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. And after these parables are finished, Mark assures his readers that Jesus always explains everything to his disciples, setting us up to expect another line-by-line explanation. Instead, there's a series of four stories describing his works of power. It seems clear that Mark intends us to hear these four events as the promised explanation for the four preceding parables. The first of those first great works of power, the stilling of the storm, is our passage for this morning. Hear the word of God. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with them. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Asleep during the storm? Really? I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to believe. I mean, have you ever been in a storm? On a boat? Out at sea? Now, I don't mean a boat like the Queen Mary or some Norwegian cruise liner or a destroyer like Jim had been on. You know, something that carries 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people. I'm talking more like the SS Minnow. 
something that'll hold maybe a dozen or so. Ever been out at sea and something like that? No one's sleeping. It was a beautiful Monday in August in the mid-90s. I was serving a church in the northern Chicago suburbs, not far from Lake Forest near Lake Michigan. My clerk of session was an avid sailor who co-owned a a boat with another guy that he kept in a marina downtown Chicago by Adler Planetarium. We're sailing across Lake Michigan tomorrow. Want to come? He asked between services. Would I? There's nothing I'd like more. So a plan was made. I'd, I'd take the train down. Uh, I'd get on the boat. We'd sail across. I'd get off, take the train back around, and they sail north up the Michigan side. What could be more fun? What could possibly go wrong? Well, maybe the fact that the sermon that morning was from the book of Jonah should have given me an idea. Well, when I got to the marina, I was incredibly impressed. Here's this 25-foot sailboat all set out, ready, gleaming in the sun. It was a 25-footer and looked big. In addition to my friend, the co-owner was there with his two teenagers. The day was hot and sunny without a cloud in the sky. We made a good start of it and were probably about halfway across. I could just barely see the Sears Tower just maybe an inch on the horizon. And then I saw from that southwest a a cloud coming across the lake. Very fast, very dark. Well, it hit us with rain. I I put down the sheets and we weathered it. In fact, the the rain felt incredibly comfortable. I was grateful. It, It went on. But then 20 minutes later, it turned around over the lake and hammered us. For two hours, we were hit with torrential rain, zero darkness, the wind went to 55 knots, we went to about 15-foot swells. That boat was small. (laughs) We sent the dad and the two teenagers downstairs and battened down the hatches. My friend and I literally tied on lest we be swept overboard. He fought the tiller, and I watched for any rogue wave. We were exhausted, and we were about ready to call the Coast Guard when finally uh, the clouds parted and we could see the steel stacks of Gary, Indiana, and we limped into Michigan Harbor, so grateful to be on terra firma. But I'll tell you this much. No one was sleeping on that boat. I I wish I could have read what I did later about Lake Michigan before I set sail that morning. Squalls tend to be a common and present a challenge to smaller boats. Hmm. The wind pattern and velocity on Lake Michigan can also get quite high, which can lead to big waves. The changeability of the conditions means a storm can quickly roll in before calming just a few hours later. Summer thunderstorms can be particularly dangerous and are difficult to predict. You don't say. (laughs) Although a much larger lake, that sounds like an exact description of what happens on the Sea of Galilee. And in the midst of the storm, the disciples call out in fear, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Do you hear it? Don't you care? It's like the cartoon I saw the other day that was titled, 
Existential Dilemma Post-Pandemic Edition. It, it, it was a picture of a man who looked a lot like Moses, and he's looking up into a shaft of light coming out of a cloud, and he's yelling, Hello! Hello! I think you're on mute! <laughs> Is God on mute? Sometimes it feels that way. Teacher, do you not care? Does God care? When the storms of life blow fierce, when life tumbles in, sleep comes hard. This summer on Thursday mornings, we're studying Tish Harrison Warren's book, Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. It's a wonderful extended meditation on the prayer of Compline, the traditional liturgical last prayer of the day. She writes in part out of the grief of her father's sudden death and also the loss of two pregnancies. She writes, My life's adversity has been no more than the usual. My experiences of loss and, and sorrow are ordinary, yet knowing these experiences are common doesn't lessen the pain of walking through them ourselves. And yet grief is always there, lying silently in the corner of every room like some decrepit family pet. She's gone to speak the deep truth that Donovan, Heidi, and I know all too well. As a priest, I see it every week. The amount of pain shouldered by even the seemingly happiest among us is enough to leave me reeling. I stand before the people in my church and I know their stories. Here's a gorgeous woman who seems to have it all together. Her beloved son is an addict and she lives with the knowledge that her love is not enough to rescue him. Here's a man whose family seems so perfect, he still reels from the pain of the father he could never please. Here's a woman with an enviable career. She longs to have a child, but she has stopped counting how many miscarriages she's had. My congregation is beautiful and ordinary, but in that one room each Sunday... There's enough sadness to make the heavens silent. I look out on you. I don't know all your stories, but I know many of them. And I know the heartbreak that comes. And maybe for you, like me, Father's Day brings some of that up to the surface. For some, this is the first Father's Day without Dad. Or maybe the last. I, I don't know of anything more needed by all of us in times when things come apart, when life tumbles in, than when we that blessed tie that binds is severed, especially in those times when parents die, when they are way out beyond us in a field we cannot reach. Now, there's more than one way for us to speak about death. We may speak of death in general and in the abstract, for it often meets us this way when we read about uh, the death of someone we don't know, when we discover that inevitable fact of life in a classroom or read about it in a newspaper or see it on the silver screen. When we deal with death in general, we have the luxury of objectivity. We can pick it up for a time, and when dinner is ready, we can put it down, postponing any decision concerning death's meaning for life. 
It's, it's not death in general, but death in particular that often pushes life against the wall and shakes the foundation of our souls. It's when death strikes home that we need to know that God cares. Earlier this week, I got a call from an old boyhood buddy named Scott. His dad, known to everyone in our hometown as Mr. D or Big Tom, was in hospice, he's passed since, with an aggressive form of liver cancer. The time was growing short, and Scott wanted to talk with me about it. Mr. D was 96, and the only other time he had ever been in the hospital was when he was born. He'd been our high school Spanish teacher and was as genial and encouraging a teacher as any in the school. But what I remember most about Mr. D happened not in the school, but what happened right after the school bell rang. If you happened to be looking out to the front of the school, you'd see a green Chevy Nova parked right at the curb with the engine running. It was driven by one of Scott's older brothers. You see, he was waiting for Big Tom to get out of school and get in the car so he could drive him across town where every day he would work the second shift at Steel from 3 to 11. For 35 years, Mr. D, without any complaint, taught from 7.30 to 2.30 and then did the second job from 3 to 11 so his family could have a better life. Scott said to me, you know, Griff, the last thing that Pop said to me was breaks. Breaks? What do you mean breaks? He said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, no. I told him that my niece had come up and we were selling his car to her. She needs it. And he motioned me closer and whispered, breaks. Turns out he was worried that the car needed new brakes. There he is, dying of liver cancer, racked with pain, and he's still thinking about other people. It, it sums up his whole life. I, I told him I was sorry that I never had him as a teacher in school, but that I remembered how I'm forever grateful to have had him teaching me how to live life for 61 years. Breaks. One interesting thing to note about our passage is that the disciples are in a boat. For the early church, the boat stood for the church. The word nave, in fact, where you all are sitting, is from the same root as navy. In the early church art, the symbol of the church is always a sailboat, never a rowboat, because it's driven by the Spirit with the shadow of the cross. And it's in this boat, in the midst of a storm, that the disciples glimpse Jesus' power and glory. The old gospel song sings, What manner of man is this that walked upon the water and calmed the sea? What manner of man is this that gave his life for you and me? Perhaps the central question isn't, Teacher, do you not care, but whether we'll get into the boat with him in the first place? For it's there where we find out how much He cares. We need to remember too that in Psalm 3, the psalmist says that the Messiah 
can lie down and sleep even in the midst of his enemies because God is his shield, his glory, his sustenance. Similarly, Jesus is able to sleep here in the midst of the storm, not out of a lack of care or concern for the safety of the disciples, but because of his abiding relationship with his Father through the Spirit. This past Thursday, when we were working through one of the chapters in the book, I found myself thinking about my own dad. Deeply grateful, deeply grateful for a gift he gave me. He gave me no money, gave me, you know, no position. I don't have any antiques at home. But Pot gave me faith. I, I remember he was not a pillar of our congregation. He was never an elder or a deacon. But the church, you know, tried to find place for him too. And so Pat was uh, active in theater. And we had a theater troupe. And they'd often get Dad to be the stage director. And one morning when I was probably nine or ten, we were in the cavernous fellowship hall. And the music cue was the hymn, Were You There When Jesus Crucified the Lord? It was a Good Friday play, I think. And Pop stopped the record player and asked me if I knew what the song was about. And talked me through grace. I am so grateful that he did that. But another memory came, and it, it came with a word. I remember very young, riding in the car and asking my dad, Dad, what does solace mean? Solace. That's a, that's a big word for a little kid. What does solace mean? You all know where that word comes from, don't you? From the old hymn, which we would have been singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care. Precious Savior, still our refuge. In his arms he'll take and shield me. Thou wilt find a solace there. Pop, what's a solace? God cares. When life tumbles in, he might be seeming to be sleeping, but can say peace. Be still. The Lord be with you. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this day. And give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted. Shield the joyous. And all for your love's sake. Amen.